Welcome to the Payments Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Rima Katz. Today, we're exploring the challenges and opportunities facing payment firms in the current landscape. First, we're going to tackle the issue of complexity and rising operational costs. Many payment firms are grappling with operational lag, leading to increased time and financial resources being spent. Then, we're going to examine the importance of embracing automated reconciliation. With teams seeking to streamline processes and allocate resources more efficiently, automated reconciliation tools offer a solution to minimize manual efforts and free up valuable time for strategic initiatives. We're also going to turn our attention to the U.S. payments landscape and its position relative to other geographies. I'm really going to explore lessons learned from these international markets. Joining me today to delve into all of this is Nick Botha, Payments Sector Lead at AutoRack, and Brian Riley, Director of Credit and Co-Head of Payments at Javelin Strategy and Research. Nick, we have a lot to unpack today. I'd like to first speak to how payment firms are dealing with complexity and increased operational costs. It looks like margins could be increasing, so how can firms increase margins further? So we obviously know the name of the game in payments is, is really around volume. Um, we've seen over the past few years, you know, organizations, they may have started off relatively small scale or really scaling up and growing quite quickly. Uh, I suppose the issue that they're experiencing is that as they're scaling up and um, you know, generating more revenue from, from the increased volumes, the, uh, the operational costs um, and efficiencies uh, tend to um, grow in line with those. So what that means is that you're not really generating more revenue because your costs are going up in line with your scale. So really, I think a key focus for the industry right now is to understand what things they can put in place to, to increase the margins per their transactions, um, which ultimately will, will increase the, the revenue that they can increase. What we're really seeing is a, a lean towards more um, operational efficiencies, um, automation, using new technology, cloud infrastructure um, that's there to support this, this growth at, a, at an affordable rate, um, which ultimately increases the margins as they grow. And that's ultimately how they can, um, you know, increase the, the their revenues as as they're scaling up as an organization. You know, Nick. It also efficiency is a big deal in anything involving financial services, but also getting more out of the data is a big deal, right? And it's got a benefit into itself. And you know, rather than just dumping all of these transactions into the proverbial shoebox, one of the things I see about AutoRack is being able to help organize that and and manage the process flow. And that that seems to be very important too, from an operational perspective. You know, certainly squeezing the dollars and and making it efficient makes sense, but also being able to use that data as a competitive weapon. Absolutely, absolutely. I think you know, just just to elaborate on that a little bit, then Brian. I think you know, often they speak about bad data in, bad data out. Um, and you know, you spoke you spoke about being able to handle that. And there's there's a number of different teams there's a number of different uh, operational flows that ultimately constitute to the output of what uh, organizations within the payment space are looking to achieve and i think it's also about consolidating where all those moving parts fit in to to create that um, efficiency that that resides between all the different elements of of the sort of end-to-end financial controls process i'm sure it makes me think of you know the, the classic word of garbage and garbage out <laughs> This is actually important data that you get to control and to put into a workflow that makes sense to process from soup to nuts. Exactly that. When I hear the term efficiency, I also think about automation. Nick, how important is it to embrace automated reconciliations? Can you speak to that? 
Yes, absolutely. You know, here at Alterec, this is really what we do. It's our bread and butter. If we think about payments companies in the past, you know, starting off relatively small, looking for um, the opportunity for growth and scale. Reconciliations is often done very manually. It's often done at an aggregate level. And it's a relatively straightforward process in terms of just matching a transaction on one side against a transaction on the other side. Uh, however, um, as you're scaling up and growing, it becomes a, a lot more complex. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of introductions to different intermediaries that happen as part of that. And it's also about looking at a reconciliation process end to end rather than just a matching engine. You know, if you're using Excel like at an aggregate level, it's relatively straightforward. But as soon as you start growing, you need to be drilling down into the, the fundamental, the details that sit behind those aggregates. And when you start doing that in the manual world, it's very complex, very, very time consuming. It places a lot of pressure on your operations teams. And also, you know, there's a couple of things you want to do as part of the output from a reconciliation process. If you think about all the different stakeholders that are you know, involved in the outputs, you're thinking of management level, you're thinking of C-suites, um, external stakeholders such as regulators or audit firms. You know, they require strict controls, um, audits and control that sit behind these processes. So moving to an automated world creates these efficiencies. Um, it helps reduce time um, spent on a lot of these manual processes uh, within the middle and back office. Um, ultimately creates transparency um, around the data and the reconciliations that you worked on and creates confidence in the, the type of reporting that you're looking to do off the back of that, both for internal and external stakeholders, but most importantly, probably for your ultimate customers. You know, Nick, something that struck me when I did the demo on AutoRec is the, the elegance that goes into the design of the workflow. And the workflow is really one of the most important pieces here, it's just not matching invoice A to invoice B and, and so forth, but making that flow. So whether it needs multiple levels of approval within an organization, right, that was important, or whether you split those transactions in some route to one area or route to the other, that's important. But that struck me as something that was very interesting about how that has been engineered well and ready for setup. You know, when you look at what you do with your cell phone, you probably do about three functions that you really need on that phone. But being able to take full advantage of what the, the process can do is really where it's at here. Brian, the workflow is actually hugely important. And I mentioned, you know, starting off somewhere as a small payments company and growing into a scale-up or, you know, an enterprise-level organization with hundreds of thousands of clients and processing millions of transactions, that workflow is hugely important. As, as an example, you can imagine starting off as a team of two people you know, managing some data and performing your reconciliations and, and, and slapping together a report on Excel versus, you know, a team of 30, 40, 50 people um, having to manage those workflows, the approval processes, um, having strict controls in place. You know, so it's about automation, but that control element around, you know, large teams and, and managing the different uh, use cases for, for, you know, effective reconciliations is hugely important. I definitely agree with you. Oh, yeah, well, been there, done that, and got the T-shirt. You know, when you look at the different level detail needed, it's just not an Excel spreadsheet. If you're in an organization that's looking to thrive and grow, you know, so being able to handle a wide range of inputs into the system is essential, and also having the right output so they can wrap properly is key to success here. Absolutely. You both spoke about having the right structure in place to really thrive and succeed. I know that we've talked about this before, but when you think about the U.S. We're a bit behind the curve when compared to other regions out there. 
Nick, what can be learned from other geographies that you're you're seeing? I think generally that is the consensus. And I think it's just because the payments market in the US is is hugely important to the global payments ecosystem. I mean, it's such a massive market. Absolutely, you know, there's there's a lot of things that can be learned. We obviously speak about, you know, how as a good example, we, we speak about, I think we spoke in one of our previous podcasts, the effect of Fed now, what what's that going to have on on the US market? Just in terms of timings, obviously instant payments has has been around in the US for a while. It's not widely adopted though, um, in terms of the size of the market. Whereas you look at places like the UK, for example, really widely adopted faster payments. We're seeing in India with the UPI as another example. You know, it's it's been hugely adopted. In fact, they're even looking at using the UPI rails internationally across border, which you know is huge developments in terms of um, you know the payments infrastructure. Where the US is kind of just you know picking up on the Fed now. We're seeing huge growth there, and really excited to see what you know effect that's going to have. But largely, you know, there is a tendency to believe that the U.S. is slightly behind. I, I know in s- certain states within the U.S., a lot of business is done by still using checks, as an example, and that just seems quite outdated. However, it's all about the culture of payments. Um, as soon as you can create some confidence um, in the markets that there are different ways to do this and they create efficiencies and they are secure, um, we would see more adoption um, from the U.S. So I think, you know, to answer the question, what lessons can be learned? I think it's really just about communication, creating open forums between the different regulators, leveraging off some successes and also learning about some failures to really make sure that there's wide adoption across the U.S. to to really adopt these new payment methods. And we are seeing it a little bit in uh, some of the states. You know, if you think about New York, you know, um, they're a little bit more ahead of maybe some of the some of the other states. Um, But that that adoption widely across the U.S. is going to be hugely important for the global payments space. For sure. Now, there's a few historic pieces here that are important. When you look at access to data under PSD2 in the European Union, that broadened the ability to bring in a lot of information that wasn't there before. And things like instant payments in the U.S. or fast payments in the U.S. have intentionally had the brakes on it. The U.S. market is the big enchilada on this, but they don't lead in everything they do. You know, so some of the developments you've seen in Europe and India are significant, and it, it becomes a good test bed for the U.S. Into faster payments, you had RTP first with it, and that was more of a consortium of large banks. And now with Fed now, it brings it to all banks in the world. You know, I kind of laugh when you talk about New York because the big deal about New York is that's where the big money center banks usually are. You know, there's a couple on the West Coast, but that's one of the driving factors. When you get into states like Florida and, and others, they tend to lag on it. But now with that, now it's going to broaden that whole area. So it's it's really going to be interesting to play. And and I think that's one of the native things about AutoRec. You know, you're not a U.S. company. You've really been focusing on on the markets that are beyond the domestic boundaries of the United States. And it does bring a dimension that's very important to, to recognize. I completely agree with you. What we are seeing is is a lot more interest from the U.S. market. Um, and I think that speaks to your point how because all of these things are, are starting to come to fruition and, and become a reality in the U.S., operational efficiencies and control, we've spoken about it um, already on this podcast, but uh, I think it's it's not just about customer acquisition any longer for these payments organizations based out of the U.S. They're starting to understand what effect this is going to have on their internal infrastructures and internal systems and, and processes. So we're seeing a lot more interest from the, from the U.S. market and 
hopefully that's um is to continue and hopefully Autoric can you know add a lot of value and expertise to what lessons could be learned from some of the firms that we work with in the UK, the EU and, and the rest of the world. Makes sense. Nick, Autoric has been around since 1994, a true fintech pioneer. Where do you envision the payment sector heading this year and onwards? One of the things we talk about with a lot of the firms in the UK and the EU is ongoing changes to regulation. But we speak a lot about safeguarding and, and what that means. And and for those listeners that aren't too familiar with it, essentially what the, the safeguarding regulation is there to do is to, within these payments organizations, is to segregate their client funds against their operational funds. Really, the reason for that is so in, in the event of any liquidity of a firm that the the clients will be entitled to all their funds back because they haven't been used um, elsewhere within the business. You know, again, the safeguarding regime is continuously being updated and changed in different markets around the globe. They're looking to the UK as that's this has already been implemented and the EU um, largely. So what I would see in the payment sector in 2024 and beyond is definitely new jurisdictions picking up on this type of regulation. We're already seeing it in the likes of Canada, seeing it in, in the likes of Israel and Singapore. And I don't think that the US is too far behind. In fact, I had a conversation with a, a client just last week and they actually mentioned the safeguarding regulation. So I'm not too sure where the Fed is on that, but I definitely think changes to existing regulation, both state and federal at a federal level, is going to be a huge thing for firms to focus on. I also think, you know, there's there's a lot of competition, there's new entrants into the market and there's new technologies available to help support different uh, types of payments. So combine those two things, you know, in the middle and back office, uh, I think uh, there'll be a few headaches, but the good news is that it's been done, there's lessons to be learned and there are partners out there that um, are there to support conversations and um, infrastructure to help support your firm moving forward. Now, Nick, you bring up an interesting point on the regulations, because regulators also go through phases, just like business does. You know, and it toggles between fairness, fairness and process and so forth to as things move on, safety and soundness. Now the big buzzword is liquidity and being able to isolate those transactions. We've seen a couple of big failures in the United States. SVB is a, a good example. And, and with the acceleration of payments, something that was not expected is that things like a run on a bank or a run on an institution can happen happen a lot quicker than it ever happened before. And so being able to have those guardrails in there is, is very important. That, that ties into the strate- strategic priorities you were talking about. You know, being in front of those issues and being able to isolate those transactions accordingly to make sure that the, the risk is minimal is important, not only when you're doing the process, but also if you're involved in the process with those sending those transactions in. Yeah, we've just done a survey here at Alteric, uh, Brian, that one of the outputs from that survey was that 85% of firms in the US actually believe that their data is, is not uh, usable within their uh, middle and back office effectively, or they can't effectively use their data, should I say. And operational resilience and customer protection are two times more important going into 2024 than they were in 2023. So just tying that into what you said there, you know, absolutely ensuring that your customers' funds are looked after and how that ties into what the, the regulators do and articulate it effectively to the payments industry. It's one thing making a regulation, but if, if the firms don't really understand it well enough and it's not articulated well enough, um, it becomes quite difficult to, 
to manage. We've actually seen that in the UK with the safeguarding regime where, you know, it, it's more guidance. It's, there's no strict rules in place. However, that's going to be changing. We've seen success with a similar type of regulation in the sort of capital market space with, with the CAS regulation. And, you know, the FCA is speaking about bringing in some of those CAS rules from the CAS handbook into safeguarding. And I think looking forward for the U.S. market, be hugely important to, to keep a close eye on that and, you know, look at what can be done to, to implement these, these types of uh, rules within your day-to-day culture of, of operations um, to, to achieve this effectively, both for your, for your firm, um, but also for your clients ultimately. Should I give, just talk for a minute on what an implementation looks like? How, how messy is it on the front end and how is it engineered on the back end? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so implementing Autoric, um, I think this speaks to the, the flexibility of the Autoric platform. You know, it's, it's not one of those platforms where we're telling organizations to completely change the way they do things. Uh, we, we follow more of a consultancy approach at Autoric, whereby we understand your operational flows within your business, what you're looking to achieve, what your business goals are for the specific teams we're working with. Um, you know, the goals of an operations team are completely different to what the finance team are looking to get out day to day or what the treasury team are looking out to get day to day. However, we do work across all these different business units. So it's really about understanding what the, the operational flows look like. And then we implement that and configure the Autoric solution to meet those requirements, as opposed to coming in and saying, you know, this is a new application. You must fit the way that uh, the Autoric application works. So it really lends itself to being very tailor-made to your specific business operational flows because we know no two payments firms look the same uh, within their middle and back office. Everyone has their different partners they work with, different infrastructure, different systems, and Autoric is able to accommodate essentially across all of those. So yes, with this consultancy approach to it, compared to maybe some of the more traditional reconciliation platforms, it, it does take a little bit longer. When I say that, by no means it's it's you know out of budget. It's pretty much in line with with the market standard. However, what you would be getting out of it is a specific tailor-made solution that meets your uh, business requirements. That's great. We've covered a lot thus far, and Nick, you gave us a glimpse into what we can expect in the next 12 to 18 months. Just to kind of like on to end a note, I'm also curious, you're having a lot of conversations with clients, I'm sure, on a daily basis. Is there anything that keeps them up at night? I'm sure there's a lot <laughs> that keep, that keeps clients up at night. But from the, you know, I mentioned, you know, the, the teams that we speak to on a day-to-day basis across all different payments organizations from issuers to acquirers to the card rails and digital payment rails, B2B payments organizations, uh, they all have you know, this slight nuances when it comes to what keeps them up at night. But I think generally we can speak about regulation that's absolutely going to be at the forefront of everyone's mind. I think competition with the introduction of things like the Fed now I definitely expect to see a lot more uh, entrance into the market. So really making sure that you're striving to maintain your existing market share, but looking to for customer acquisition to, to take place and really just operational resilience. You know, how do you set up your operations and processes to make sure that you can effectively onboard new clients, create confidence that you're looking after their requirements, both from a, a nature and culture of payments, but also from protecting their funds. 
Thank you both so much for sharing your insights and perspective, and thanks to everyone for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe and stay updated on the latest Payments Journal episodes, and don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues.